Welcome to the CEO of Destiny podcast, where you will find the tools to fulfill the purpose of your generation and wildly succeed in the marketplace. And now your host, Andre J. Benjamin. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, the nation, how it's kind of moved away from, I know there's a lot of stats on small business and their impact on you. You cited the Kauffman Foundation, which is you know very popular and doing a lot of research. Uh, as also SBA and various others. I, I'm all into the footnotes. I like the kind of that, you know, nerd stuff. But for the podcast sake, can you talk a little bit about some of those stats about uh, the driver of small business on the economy and then also how the nation has moved away from spending on innovation? Um, there's not a lot given to a lot of research and development and innovation for children, like learning and the nation focusing on that and, and looking at how to bring in, you know, tremendous value. Can you talk a little on that? Yeah, I mean, well, let's see. I think 40% of the GDP of the U.S. is produced by small businesses. And wow. that's, a, that's a bit of an old number, right? Because one of the issues here is small businesses have been so um, underestimated that we're not even really measuring them very well. And we saw that during the pandemic. Um, but the, that's, that's data from about 2014. Um, and still almost half of the employment in the country is small businesses, right? And I think the problem that the lack of recognition of that is currently driving a lot of the conversation in Washington, the mistaken conversation in Washington about why people don't want to work right now. Um, and the fact that half of the economy is small businesses just isn't even entering into that, into that conversation. Um, the, the, so small businesses are just critical to the economy. Those are the numbers that reflect that, but the ways they are critical um, are that um, their births and deaths. So the number that start every year replacing those that fail every year, they make our economy dynamic. And the American economy has been uniquely dynamic, was uniquely dynamic in the 20th century. And that's also driven um, so much of the innovation in the country historically. Um, and now maybe I'll turn it over to Seth to talk about this. The other fascinating piece um, of this question of how innovation happens, because it's not only um, small business. You need them in the economy making things dynamic, but you also need um, capital, especially very patient capital. Yeah, I mean, really, if, if there's one key takeaway from the book, it's that capital matters. Um, and I think that um, people don't always recognize what a struggle it is to, um, to find capital as a business owner. And, and the truth is that, and, and these stats I think are very surprising to most people, only about 1% of businesses take money from venture capital. So it's, I mean, it's a big pile of money and it's really important, but it's a small number of businesses in the overall scheme of businesses that are being started. Um, and I think this goes to this, this sort of question of like Silicon Valley taking over Mindshare. I mean, it, you know, again, that number kind of blows people away, but actually only about 17% of businesses take money from banks. And so the vast majority of businesses, 80 plus percent are figuring it out themselves, right? They're putting it on a credit card. They're using a home equity line. Uh, they're raising money from friends and family, or frankly, they're just starting their businesses with almost no money, right? With whatever they have in the bank. 
Um, and as the nature and the types of people who are starting businesses has changed, we haven't done a good job of keeping up with um, how to how to funnel capital to these new builders. Um, and so the result is that there are fewer businesses being started today than there should be um, because businesses simply lack the capital. And, and interestingly, we we saw sort of a almost like an unintended experiment around this in the last uh, couple of months through the federal stimulus checks. Uh, there was an Upshot article a couple of weeks ago uh, in the New York Times. It was asking the question, which, of course, is obvious. The answer to which is obvious to Elizabeth and to me. But it asked the question, you know, are, are people taking stimulus checks and, and starting businesses? Right. Is this uptick in new business starts, uh, which really is this kind of a silver lining, if you will, of covid is the uptick due to the fact that people have stimulus checks. And by the way, these stimulus checks, I mean, obviously, individually, very impactful at thirteen hundred dollars. But from a business perspective, probably isn't what most people think of when they think of how much money does it take to start a business, but it just underscores the point that actually it doesn't always take that much money to get going. And the truth is, yes, people are taking their stimulus checks and starting businesses. Now, um, providing stimulus checks as a means for people starting businesses is a little bit like, you know, drinking water by opening your mouth in a rainstorm, right? I mean, you, you do get some rain, right? You get some water, but it's not the most effective way to channel it uh, to what what it needs to be, and we talk a lot in the book about uh, different avenues that that we might take as a society, not always government, but it could be individual action as well, which we focus on quite a bit. Um, but to uh, to help more new builders access more capital uh, and access reasonable ca capital, which is not Silicon Valley style capital at millions of dollars. Um, designed to find a couple of big businesses and most of which fails, right? 66% of venture deals fail to return capital by one estimate by Kaufman uh, Foundation. 75% uh, of venture funds don't return capital. It's not a very effective model for broad-based economic development. It, it works for certain funds. And I mean, obviously it's been, it's worked for me for 20 years, um, but but it's not effective from a broad-based perspective. What we need are what we call camels, uh, which is a term we borrowed from one of our favorite entrepreneurs, Fred Swanaker. Um, but are you know they're not mythical. They contrast to the unicorns at Silicon Valley. They're not mythical. They're much more hardy, um, and they're the workhorses of the economy. And we need more of that. And, and to and to spawn more camels, you know, we need tens of thousands of dollars on a per business basis, not millions and tens of millions of dollars. And I think that's a different mindset that we need to start thinking thinking about. It's very, it, it makes it very achievable and reachable for people when they can see it as, because most people who, as you talk about, if, if someone started, uh, you know, I love how you, you highlight some of these entrepreneurs, which I want to hear you kind of cover a few of them, but the idea that you always have to, it's even what was shown on television and whatnot, as you go to, you know, you go to a bank, when you get an idea, you go to a bank and the bank, you know, shakes your hand and makes you jump through all these hoops and they'll give you the, they granted you the, the, the loan and then you go out and you forge and you just forge ahead and then it just takes off. And the reality, when you gave the stat of people that, and the majority of people I know who started business, they didn't go to the bank. They took whatever they had that was in their disposal. They went to friends and family. I have a friend who went through, uh, he, did, he first started on his own out of his own capital, which wasn't much. Then he went to, um, he started, he immediately got sales. Then he took that and went to, uh, did a Kickstarter campaign to get uh, some component of, of the, um, I think he needed some new equipment, got the equipment, scaled up more and is continuing to scale up. And I know others that are, I have another uh, young man that is, um, that I've been working with for a few years 
and encouraging him to start his own business. And he has, and what he has done is he's, he's in a trade and he's in a union and he had worked to get in the union because he, he doesn't have a passion for it, but he knew he could take the capital from it because he said, man, we work, we work hard on those jobs. We work 13 hour shifts. We work long, but, and then sometimes we're off for a while. So he was taking, he's been taking that capital, paying for all his permits, paying for a food scientist. He's developing his product. He's, he's getting his labels done. He's taking this downtime that a lot of people could miss out on and kind of look at it with a, if they, if they buy into the disparaging narrative of, you know, the future of you is, is decided by, and no disrespect, but um, because, you know, I have friends that are, you know, in the Valley and whatnot, but, you know, but, but by a bunch of nerds that are sitting around determining how the future is going to look, oh, you, you're going to, you're going to sit at home and you're just going to get a check and the robots are going to do everything. And, you know, that's just, it's almost very dystopian. So this idea of, getting you becoming a camel you know there's the idea of actually taking what you talked about the power of the agency it's 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 very huge um i love i want to talk a little bit about um media and its impact uh, on this this narrative uh, i love how you guys highlighted about how the shows and you know the movies this is very important because my my children and i uh my wife and of course with our children we have an ongoing dialogue, the two oldest who are 11 and eight. I noticed that at one point, all the shows they watch portrayed all the business owners as villains. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that, but it would always be when they're introed on the show, they would scale up to a, you know, a high rise, you know, right. skyscraper. And then they're in there plotting, whether they were a fashion company, the fashion doesn't care about the everything. They're just, they just care about making money or if they are, in food, they just care about, you know, pill, you know, pillaging all the, it, it just, it just was, it just became reoccurring. And so they said, dad, that's not true. Then they started to notice it. And they, and so it's, I, I want to talk a little bit about that as well as when you talk about shows that when I grew up, I grew up in the eighties, I was born in the late seventies and um, shows that I watched the, the Cosby show, both parents were almost entrepreneurial. Um, the uh, Three's Company, Jack's Bistro. I don't know if you guys remember that, <laughs> right? But I he inspired. He was a restaurant owner. But that's yes, like, he yeah. wanted to small business. He wanted to. He wanted so hard to. That's what he really wanted to do. Without all the goofing around, he wanted to run his own restaurant. That's yeah. what. And then uh, Magnum PI, you guys highlighted the Jeffersons, um, even Sanford and Son. I guess he was running a junkyard. But right. just this idea that these are. This is the more realistic driver that people can relate to. So can you talk a little bit about media's impact and kind of the storytelling um, that you see and, and what you feel is being seen and also what you feel is underrepresented? Yeah, so this is like, you know, my, my life's work, right? Is it being a storyteller? Um, and so uh, I, for sure, I can tell you, um, that the mainstream media quote, I mean, if you think about who the mainstream media is, well, they're big businesses, right? Um, you know, the Washington Post is now owned by uh, Jeff Bezos, um, you know, the New York Times, the big TV shows, these are all big companies, right? And so I think they and the people who work for them and their advertisers view the world through a lens of big business. Um, and I also think that what plays very well in today's narratives is conflict. So the media then tends to put workers and business into conflict. 
and its big business and workers into conflict. Um, and it just misses this 50% of the economy that is small business. That's a totally different narrative. Um, and Seth and I just wrote a piece about this for an economics magazine. Um, but this idea today, right, you can be a worker for one week and then be an owner the next week. I mean, it's really, you know, you can, it doesn't take as much money as it used to, to get a business off the ground. It does still take time and you do need to feel kind of the, the agency and have the resources to take the time to do it. Um, but you can do it for not that much money. And so it's very accessible for a lot of people, um, but we're not hearing the story of how you can do it pretty easily. We're not hearing the story of um, how you can do it and be happy. Um, and we're not hearing the story of how important those people are. And they're often pretty heroic people, right? Like I, you think of the business owners who are working day by day, you know, like in Texas, there was the one furniture store owner who, you know, turned on a dime and like opened his furniture stores and turned them into shelters, right? Um, that's the kind of role you see small businesses playing in their communities, um, but we don't do enough reporting and storytelling about them. There, there is a gap. I, when the first, uh or they call it the great recession because you know nobody, nobody wanted to use the d word uh, but 2000 in the 2008 2009 i remember that i got curious about how uh, you know since everyone was comparing it to the depression i wanted to know well who succeeded during the depression so i went and did a lot of research on what were the businesses that made it and it was a lot of ones that began during that time but they also pivoted they did what needed to be done to uh, stay around. And the biggest thing that I saw was that they didn't, uh, they, didn't, um, they didn't stop on marketing and serving their customers. They continued to serve their customer. They continued to focus on them to keep relationship. Even if people had, they weren't able to pay for the service, they maybe created a tab with them. They did different things to work out relationally still staying in business. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about this idea of it's not as labor, I mean, it, it is labor intensive, but it's not as capital intensive. Are, are you, are both of you familiar with the work of Muhammad Yunus? You ever heard that name before? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think he might, he's even maybe referenced in our capital models chapter. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So um, the micro lending. Um, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah would you talk a little bit about him? Yeah. And the and the idea of I mean again that goes back to the idea of agency right because a lot of what he did was was he provided agency to these uh, primarily women right who he was loaning to yeah. and, and but he also came up with different models right and I think I I think that actually what that highlights for us and we sort of we talk about this a little bit is that there's this belief that there's sort of a formula for lending right for for giving people money. And, and oftentimes that formula is just wrong, right? And, and we talk about some of the new capital models that are really interesting. A couple in particular, these sort of public-private partnerships where basically private money goes into local funding vehicles and it gets matched by either state or federal money, uh, sort of enhances that. Um, and we talk about one, the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. They only work with companies that already were turned down for bank financing. Um, so the banks have already said these people are not a good credit, um, but actually their loss ratios are significantly lower than that of, of banks. 
Um, and it's lower because they just do a better job of working with the businesses. It's called, in, the, in the vernacular of this, this part of the community banking and CDFI system, it's called technical assistance. Um, but it's essentially mentorship and help, right? And we talk a lot in the book about the need to connect new builders with, with mentors and with people who can help um, because no one builds a business in a vacuum, right? Everyone needs, everyone needs some assistance. And uh, what the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund really proved is that when you give these very capable people, but who otherwise didn't qualify for a loan, when you give them a little bit of help, they, they do better, right? They, these, these are people that, that, weren't eligible for loans, but yet built businesses that were more successful than the average business because they had a little bit of additional help. And I think that's something that's really important to, to think about. And that's kind of what, what, you know, Muhammad did in his model too, right? Because he, he founded these people borrowed money in these collectives and these women came together and they helped each other out. And that's essentially the same thing we're talking about. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Do us a favor. If this was useful in any way for you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews will allow others to easily discover the podcast. If you'd like more information and to receive a free download, rediscover your destiny, go to ceoofdestiny.com. Thanks again and tune in next time.